Governments must prioritize vulnerable groups when reopening economies. You're listening to Insights on Longwood's Healthcare Services Radio. Coming up after the break, Michael Green asks, Is virtual care the new norm? But up first, Naomi Lightman and Lorraine Hardcastle on reopening economies. Despite calls that we are in it together, many of the most vulnerable communities are bearing the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic. This includes individuals living and working in long-term care facilities, factory workers, homeless and incarcerated populations, and some on-reserve indigenous communities. As governments reopen their economies, policymakers must balance the interests of the broader public with those who live and work in conditions that put them at risk. Initially, governments scrambled to implement public health measures to flatten the curve, with limited thought to the impact of social inequalities. Rather, many of the strategies for social distancing presumed individual family homes, nuclear family arrangements, access to private cars, workplaces that could transition to online formats, and living conditions where outdoor space was available. And as a result, many groups outside this presumed norm were either left behind or inadequately protected during the spread of the virus. For example, provinces were slow to address how social distancing would affect individuals struggling with homelessness. This led to a rush to create accommodations and shelters, often in close quarters that did not meet physical distancing recommendations and lacked basic facilities such as showers and laundry. In other cases, provinces allocated resources in ways that failed to adequately protect at-risk populations. For instance, while they put significant efforts into preparing hospitals for an influx of cases, long-term care homes were left without adequate staff, personal protective equipment, or testing supplies. An astonishing 79% of Canada's COVID-19 deaths have been in long-term care and seniors' homes. Conditions are so bad in some facilities that lawsuits have been filed, criminal charges may be laid, and the federal government has deployed military assistance. Ontario alone has infections in 174 homes, including 2,831 infected residents, 1,111 deaths, and 1,671 infected staff. Some governments have lagged behind in protecting residents by prohibiting workers from working in multiple facilities and in testing all staff and residents. Elderly residents in for-profit homes have often fared worst. Healthcare workers in long-term care homes have struggled to obtain personal protective equipment, and some allege that they were instructed to work while symptomatic. Long-term care staff are overwhelmingly women, and many are immigrants and racialized individuals. Long-term care workers are often underpaid relative to their hospital counterparts, and many are employed part-time and thus may not have access to sick leave benefits, which deters missing work while ill, given the need to make ends meet. The precarious nature of their work may make them less likely to advocate for their own safety or to report dangerous conditions. In meatpacking and poultry processing factories across Canada, there is a widespread infection, and in some cases entire communities are affected. For example, the Cargill plant in Alberta has almost 1,000 cases, which represents nearly half of its workforce. 
The outbreak has spread to the workers' community, including outbreaks at a nearby long-term care home and First Nation. In total, over 1,500 cases are linked to this facility. Factory work is difficult. Rates of workplace injury are high, and staff often live in close conditions. Workers are disproportionately immigrants, and many are temporary foreign workers, which hinders their ability to invoke workplace safety protections. Here, too, governments have been slow to respond and unwilling to close factories due to concerns about the impact on Canada's food supply chains. As summer agricultural work begins, similar outbreaks are likely to occur among migrant farm workers. Ontario has already seen its first cases among fruit and vegetable farm workers. Other vulnerable groups are similarly at risk due to close living conditions and poor access to health services. As economies reopen, guards or others who work in prisons may be at increased risk of community transmission. Should they then bring in an infection to work, prisons are spaces that are highly conductive to the rapid spread of COVID-19. To date, 294 inmates at federal correctional facilities have tested positive for COVID-19. Indigenous people may also be at risk due to poor access to health services and crowded living conditions on reserves. As of May 8th, there were 164 confirmed cases on First Nations. In urban centers, indigenous groups make up a disproportionate share of the homeless and incarcerated populations, both of which are also at high risk for contracting COVID-19, highlighting the intersection of vulnerabilities among affected groups. Provincial governments failed to properly protect some of Canada's most vulnerable residents in their haste to stop the spread of COVID-19. In starting to reopen provincial economies, it is imperative that they not make the same mistakes. Governmental policy choices must not only be dictated by majoritarian and economic interests, they must also address social inequalities and take substantive steps to protect those most at risk of infection. Naomi Lightman is an assistant professor at the Department of Sociology at the University of Calgary in Alberta. Lorraine Hardcastle is an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law and Cummings School of Medicine, also at the University of Calgary in Alberta. For the full text, references, and author credentials of the essays on Insights, please visit us at longwoods.com insights. And now Michael Green asks, is virtual care the new norm? Increased use of virtual care. When the COVID-19 pandemic struck Canada, healthcare delivery changed almost overnight. The demand for and provision of virtual care services, connecting a healthcare provider by email, phone, or video call, surged because virtual care was viewed as an effective means to minimize in-person visitation and reduce the spread of the virus. Pre-COVID-19, more than 80% of care was being delivered in person. In April, that number drastically reduced to about 40%. In other words, 60% of visits are now being conducted virtually. It is interesting to note that a variety of virtual care options are being used by Canadians who have COVID-related health concerns. For example, through April, approximately 23% of those seeking COVID-related care visited their family physician virtually. 
19% accessed the system through 811 or a telehealth line, and 17% reached out to a private sector virtual care provider. This increase in virtual care activity was also evident on the e-prescribing side. Canada Health Infoway's Prescribe IT service, which allows prescribers to electronically transfer a prescription from their electronic medical record system to their patient's pharmacy, saw a 24% increase in transaction volumes and a 38% increase in e-renewal requests. Again, a paperless, faxless option that negates the need to drop off a prescription at a pharmacy is not only convenient, but it is an important contributor to flattening the curve. A rapid virtual response. Providers and jurisdictions quickly ramped up their virtual care services to ensure continued delivery of quality care. Infoways supported digital health leaders across the country as they coordinated activity, identified priorities, and accelerated their ability to respond. To help accelerate the shift to virtual care, Infoway reallocated existing funds to create a rapid adoption of virtual care fund. In consultation with the jurisdictions, we identified three priority areas for investment that would have the biggest impact in the shortest amount of time. Increasing capacity of 811-slash-teletriaging services, accelerating the implementation of virtual care solutions, and offering online mental health services. This rapid response was possible because we were able to leverage the digital health investments we have made over the past two decades. We now have a solid digital health infrastructure to support data access, including lab results, wide wide implementation of EMRs in primary care, patient portals for many Canadians, and the foundations to provide care virtually. To exemplify our progress, 86% of primary care physicians in Canada are now using EMRs giving them access to their patients' medical profiles, lab results, immunization records, and the basic information that they need to provide good care. Access to such essential information from anywhere has been critical during the COVID-19 pandemic and has allowed clinicians to continue to see and treat their patients. Clinicians with integrated systems, which allow them to access data from a variety of sources, deliver care virtually and incorporate advanced functionality like prescribe IT are even better able to provide quality and comprehensive care to their patients. And they can do so in a matter that keeps patients safe, especially those who are most vulnerable. Is virtual care the new norm? The evidence is clear. Virtual care is an effective means of care delivery. And just like some situations demand face-to-face meetings, while others an email or phone call will do, virtual visits are just one of the available delivery model options, not the only one. However, today virtual care is the safest way to deliver primary care. It increases access to care and is convenient. The question is, what will happen in a post-COVID-19 world? Anecdotal information from clinicians and patients alike suggests that there is no going back. Virtual care has reached a tipping point in Canada, and a virtual-first approach may be the order of the day. This is good news for those of us who have been preparing for this day for decades. A new day in healthcare is here. We are ready. 
Michael Green has long been a visionary for the way digital health solutions can make public health systems more sustainable and improve the patient experience. He is the president and CEO of Canada Health InfoWay, a federally funded not-for-profit organization. Insights is produced and presented by Longwoods Publishing, providing better care through health services publishing, education, and recruitment. For more information, please visit us at longwoods.com. I'm Eric Hart. Thanks for listening.